0: Who let the dogs out? I love dogs. I love dogs too. Glad we're all on the same page. Five, four, three, two, one.
1: Welcome to the Sarah Andreco Show.
2: Hey everyone, I am Sarah Andreco, a canine behavior consultant based out of Charlotte, North Carolina. And today we are specifically talking about nutrition and microbiology. I've luckily brought along two individuals that are very well informed on the topic. Uh, and, And the question you might be asking is on a behavior channel, why are we talking about nutrition and behavior? Well, those things are very much linked and intertwined, and um, given that these subjects can be a bit complex and intimidating, I brought along with me today Dr. Honecker and Dr. Ja, who are here to help us understand some of the basics and really take a look at uh, how microbiology, the microbiome of the gastrointestinal system and nutrition are related to one another, and some of the things that would help for you as a listener to know so that you can look out for the best well-being of your pet in general. So um, hopefully we uh, can provide some some really good, easy to understand information to make nutrition and even microbiology a little less intimidating, a little easier to understand the importance behind it. And without further ado, I would love to introduce to you uh, the two gentlemen here with me, Dr. Honecker, who is... Uh, the microbiologist on the team with Nom Nom, fresh dog food company that I will introduce you to soon as well. And then also Dr. Jha here, who is head of bioinformatics at Nom Nom as well. And to uh, not do any injustice, I'm going to allow these two gentlemen to introduce themselves. So uh, Dr. Jha, let's go ahead and kick it off with you, if you don't mind.
0: Yeah. Hi, Uh, my name is Ashish Jha and I'm a head of bioinformatics at Nom Nom now. And um, I take, uh, we collect um, poop samples from dogs and we uh, sequence them to identify what sorts of uh, microbes, uh, primarily bacteria that are present in the dog gut. Um, And we're now um, uh, trying to integrate samples, um, the microbiome samples with the survey um, data that we collect to identify the, the tight link between Microbes and health.
1: Uh, I'm Ryan Honecker. I'm the director of microbiology at Nam Nam. Um, I've been a microbiologist for since undergrad and for several companies and positions after that. Um, really interested in it. Moved over um, into the pet health space a couple years ago because uh, it's super interesting. There's a lot of things that we still don't know, which is really an exciting place to be working in. Um, and yeah, I would say microbiology is not that hard to understand. If, if I can um, understand it, so hopefully we can. Shed some light on some of the stuff that we're doing and also, I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned specifically behavior because behavior is very, um, is being, there, there's a lot of increasing links between actually the microbiome and behavior actually. So it's, it's, um, it's one of the things we're actually interested in looking at in some of our studies. So.
2: Excellent. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah. I have a huge interest in the behavior side of things. In fact, um, you know, when I get the first thing I do with some of my fear aggressive dogs, I'm like probiotics for everybody, common care here, common care there. (laughs) Right. We don't, it it doesn't hurt anything. And we're seeing a lot of research come out to show that quite the opposite. It, It really, helps. Um, And as we have seen some research in humans too, behavior, human behavior is directly related to the microbiome as well. So really interesting stuff coming out. And I can't wait to hear more about um, what you guys are doing on your end in regard to that as well. So um, I just want to start with a quick definition too. A lot of people might not know essentially what microbiology is in general. We know what nutrition is, you know, it's what we feed our pets, what we put in our body for energy and sustaining life. But microbiology, for anyone that doesn't know, is really the study of, and please feel free to elaborate if I mess this up, but it's the study of microscopic organisms, basically. And um, those different microorganisms can be bacteria or viruses or protozoans or archaea. And um, from my understanding as well, those in microbiology also kind of study and understand the host's response to these different living organisms. And in what we're talking about, the host is the dog, the domesticated dog. So would you say that's a pretty accurate representation of kind of what we're looking at and um, what specific microorganisms that we're looking at when it comes to nutrition?
1: Sure. Yeah, that was a, an excellent introduction. Um, very well done. Very well spoken. Um, they better than I would have said probably. So <laughs> So when we when we talk about the microbiome and, and health in general in, um, in people and in pets, um, it's really kind of the way the way that I think about it is the, so the microbiome is the collection of all these different organisms together. So trillions and trillions of different bacteria, viruses, all these different organisms that you mentioned, but they're all living together kind of um, the way I think about it is kind of like an organ. So the way like, for example, your liver, it consists of a bunch of different types of cells they are doing specific things and all interacting with each other. And then kind of holistically, there are some larger things that happen. That's kind of the way the microbiome works as well. There's all sorts of these different organisms, but they're all working together and living in this really complex ecological um, sort of balance with one another where they all are doing things that benefit each other, but are also doing a lot of things to benefit us. And then the way that they, as you mentioned, kind of interact with with the host, with the gut, you know, with our, with our dog's gut. Um, they un, unsurprisingly have a lot to do with nutrition the way that we you know generate energy and harvest energy the type types of vitamins and and molecules that they generate and then how that interacts with us and the molecules that they generate the positive health impacts they have on us i mean it's it's very complex and rich environment it's like it's like an ecological environment I like to use the analogy it's like think about like an acre of rainforest there's all these huge diverse cross kingdom. I mean, there are are bacteria and there are giant trees and there are animals and all these things kind of interact together in balance to then provide benefit for each other as well as for the environment.
2: Yeah, I like that you point out the benefit there too, because, um, you know, and these are tiny organisms, we can't see these organisms. And as a collective unit in the gut, um, they are essentially mutually beneficial for the most part, unless you get some sort of overgrowth or disruption there, correct?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it's it's really interesting the health implications of of the microbiome. And so, you know, the, the largest microbiome and the the one that we talk about the most, um, because it's the largest and it's also easy to sample is the gut microbiome. So the bugs that live in um kind of in your in your large intestine, essentially, is kind of the way to think about it. But there's microbiomes on every surface in the body. I mean your skin, your eye, every single surface of you. Has kind of an ecological niche where a bunch of microorganisms are living and interacting with us, and so it's as you as these things can come out of bal- um, out of balance, it's called a dysbiosis. So where the balance has been shifted, either from you know an infection or an underlying health condition or you know nutrition, for example, all in, these imbalances have been tied to a huge amount of different pathologies. So things like we've already mentioned, like behavior, things that you um, would kind of expect would be involved to so things like, you know, nutrition or, you know, problems with the gut, you know, things that like pet parents are, you know, things like allergy and diarrhea and vomiting, things that, you know, are common, commonly encountered in pets, but also some things that are maybe a little bit more unexpected. So there's been, you know, the role of microbiome in, in cancer is being I'm very heavily studied right now in a variety of ways. So it's really interesting. And, you know, good job security for microbiologists and bioinformatics people that every time we look at a different disease, we're finding some really interesting links with kind of this, this um, additional organ.
2: So, in talking about dysbiosis, this kind of disruption of the GI system, how do you know if a canine has a happy microbiome, so to speak? It, 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 can a can a canine have a disrupted GI system or gastrointestinal system without symptoms, or is it always symptomatic in your experience?
1: Ashish, you want to talk about them?
0: No, no, go ahead. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, th- th- and then you can jump in and correct me. Is that is that the, that's <laughs> <Yeah>. the strategy? <laughs> yeah. So, so it's it's a it's really interesting because what we so most of the the research in microbiome space is in is in humans as you would expect. Um, So there's just not nearly as much known in dogs, and even less that's known in cats. Um, But what we do know is that it's it's been really hard to kind of define what kind of a a baseline sort of reference healthy microbiome looks like in a lot of ways, Um, especially from if you look at kind of what organisms comprise that. Um, that being said, there does seem to be what the organism's doing. So kind of the gene content. So the genes make proteins that do things. So there's these all these different functions and different, diff- very different bacteria can have somewhat similar functions. So what there, there seems to be emerging is that there's more of a functional sort of basis of what a healthy microbiome looks like more so than necessarily a compositional um, um, basis for it. So That I mean, this is one of the things that, you know, even in people, we can't, like no one's been able to, you know, tens and thousands, tens and tens of thousands of samples. No one can figure out what is normal, really, because there's just a lot of inter-individual variability. But this is one of the things that we're really interested in looking for. You know, that being said, we can tell when things are not Good. If things are if you loo- have very low diversity, so you have predominantly one type of bacteria, that's not good. That would be kind of a can in our rainforest anil- analogy to you know an overgrowth of a particular species, right? So we know things you know when we lack diversity, basically we're lacking f- functions that are normally supposed to be there for to you know have a kind of a healthy interaction with um, with the host, with the you know with the, the dog gut, for example. So. It's really complicated, but it's something that we're looking at. And we also know, you know, if we have the presence of pathogens, you know, something like E. coli or salmonella, some of these things that, you know, that we know are unhealthy, if those are present at higher levels, and we know that that is something that's not desirable because they, while they don't always cause disease, they're more likely to cause disease if they're there in higher amounts. And so it's very, it's a very complicated balance, but it's something that we're, we're definitely really trying to focus a lot of our efforts on is if we can figure out know, which microbiome compositions are risk factors for, you know, development of any number of these pathologies, then what can we do then in kind of a precision nutritional or interventional approach to then rectify that? Um, in addition, you know, probiotics is a great example where if we can prophylactically help maintain through a healthy diet, you know, with fiber and probiotics, we can help maintain a a kind of a, a healthy microbiome, then that helps stop the progression into, you know, it helps maintain the balance, maintain, maintain health, uh, you know, protects against infection and other things that can actually then disrupt the microbiome.
2: So you said, you mentioned probiotics and, um, you know, we talked about that kind of in the beginning too, with one of the ones that I use for dogs with fear, aggression, but can you explain briefly, you know, what are probiotics and what are prebiotics and kind of what's the difference with that and and why do we need to be concerned as pet owners about that?
1: Sure. So, um, prebiotics, um, are, so, so, this is i think this is a, such an interesting part about about the microbiome is so prebiotics are fibers um from generally plant-based fibers that we don't digest as people we don't have the enzymes to be able to digest these things but the bacteria in our guts do so essentially where we eat these these fibers um you know so or which are prebiotics um as basically as food for the microbes, and then they do all sorts of beneficial things with these prebiotic fibers. So, um, and they're super interesting. And I mean, these are there's a, a large body and a growing body of literature about the the usage of and the benefit of of prebiotic fiber. The other part of that is probiotics, which are live. Um, um Bacteria, so these are things that you commonly associate with fermented foods, so things like yogurt or you know kimchi anything that's kind of fermented is pre- predominantly even things like salami it, basically anything that's fermented um bacterially it has a bunch of these probiotic strains in them, but what we've been able to do is isolate those that are most beneficial from these fermented from kind of the environment from these fermented foods, and then we can deliver those as kind of as a supplement so And then the kind of the additional strength comes when you combine a prebiotic and a probiotic, which is then called a symbiotic. So then you are kind of nourishing the bacteria that are there, but you're also providing these other beneficial bacteria. So the probiotics, they they do a whole host of things. Some of the the benefits of them come from molecules that they make as they when they're in your gut that are beneficial. So there's just a bunch of different things that they do that are beneficial, but then together, you know, in conjunction with good nutrition, that really helps to fortify and maintain a healthy, a healthy gut.
2: Excellent. And I'm curious too, I would imagine it's very similar, but you know, in, in human nutrition, if you talk with a nutritionist or anyone that's kind of in that field, they tell you, you know, they're helping you pick and choose what to actually put in your body because they don't want to see an overgrowth of the wrong type of bacteria, the quote unquote bad bacteria that kind of takes over and wipes other things out and puts people in dysbiosis as well. You know, um, one of the things I hear is if you eat too much sugar, you know, that feeds some of the bad bacteria they say, and then um, it can even control your cravings because there's a direct link between what they call the blood brain barrier, say that three times fast. um, And your, your gastrointestinal gut lining to where the, the microbiome or the, the microbes can actually start to kind of control what your brain is telling you that it wants to eat more of so that you feed those things. And it can be quite a vicious cycle. So how similar is that in, in dogs as well? If you're feeding them, you know, um, cheeseburgers and white chocolate and all sorts of fun snacks, does it have a similar effect with th- that body now kind of craving that or wanting that? Obviously we can't ask them what their cravings are, but
1: yeah, so I mean, yeah, I think you did a great a great job summarizing, you know, kind of broadly what what we know about these types of things in people, but and as far as we know, a lot of these things are being um, reciprocated in in, in dogs. Um, obviously, you know, they have a different GI system, they have different diets, there are baseline nutritional differences in you know what makes a whole a whole diet for a dog versus a human, but a lot of these things seem to be the case. You know, as far as like some of the deeper connections, like you know, between satiety and particular. Um, the amount of food they're eating, like, there's still emerging research coming out on that. But there seem to be a lot of parallels between the way that it works in people and the way that it works in, in dogs. And so, you know, you think about dogs as, you know, kind of the the protein to fat ratio, like, I mean, high fat is bad, it causes pro-inflammatory, like it causes inflammatory things to happen, it causes decreased, you know, mucosal depth, that coat the inside of the intestines and protect them and keep them from leaking all of these things are seem to be similar things seem to be happening in dogs, but it's definitely an area that 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 is still being explored
2: interesting, yeah, and just um, to clarify satiety meaning um, being satiated the feeling of being full so kind of the same for them too if they have that feeling of fullness after eating they're they're more likely to not um, want those extra cookies or or um, scrounge for scraps anyway. Um, and it's interesting you mentioned the high fat issue too, because uh, I just recently did a, a ton of research on raw diets. And um, one of the issues with the homemade raw diets is it tends to be much higher in fat content, which on the outside looks great. You get this shiny, lovely coat on your dog and you know, it looks like everything's going well, but on the inside, again, with the lining and, and the cholesterol levels and everything else, it can be kind of wreaking havoc slowly from my understanding.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's important for people to realize when it comes to, you know, diet and nutrition that it's not really a matter of opinion. I mean, it, it, nutrition is a science. Food science is, is science. You know, there are real things that we should be doing. And there are things, you know, like, you know, the AFCO feeding guidelines, which are kind of, you know, bare minimum requirements that, that commercial food has to meet. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's the most balanced or contains the most kind of you know other types of phytonutrients and other types of, of nutritional components that can be ultimately the, the best for for dogs. The you know, baseline,
2: essentially, correct? Yeah,
1: exactly. And I mean, raw yeah. diets are also problematic because they, you know, there's two reasons that we cook food one is because it makes it more digestible and two is that it makes it safer and these are both things that are true with pet foods and there have certainly been documented cases i mean the cdc recommends not feeding raw because of not only can you get your pet sick but you can get sick as well from that i mean you know you you don't you wash everything down when you have raw chicken but if you're feeding raw chicken to your dog then you still can get salmonella or campylobacter or food food poisoning from it so they actually you know they're they're i think very smart guidelines against, um, recommending those types of diets.
2: Yeah, And it's interesting. I always, um, I hear clients of my own tell me, Oh, I've been feeding raw for five years and I've never had a problem. And, and I always say, yeah. And I worked in the ER at NC state and let me tell you what it's like to get in a full bunny suit in isolation and have an owner spend $3,000 because their dog has salmonella and has to be quarantined for it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I get to see the other side of that. It's so funny when people are like, well, I've never had a problem before. Yet, yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, a, yeah, you have to take a, precautions yeah. for sure. Yeah,
1: I mean, and there's no, I mean, as far as I'm aware, there's no nutritionally sound reason why that that is beneficial to, you know, a, a cooked, a cooked diet. I mean, for sure, processing and food and macronutrient composition and caloric density and all of these kind of nutritional things. There's lots of differences between diets, but you know, yeah, raw is a little bit. I am also as a microbiologist, I'm just biased against it because I don't like. Why would you want to bring in these possible all yeah, into your into your house, into your kitchen if you don't have to. Yeah.
2: No, thank you. Well, it's hard for people because they can't see them, hence the micro part of it. So if you don't yeah. see them, sometimes you don't know that they're there and they, they're a very real threat as well. Um, I do want to talk a little bit too about what Nom Nom is doing as far as nutrition goes, because I know that you're doing you're doing some very specific diets. It is fresh food, so it is cooked. Uh, it is human grade food from my understanding too, which means that um yeah, it's I've, not I've, I've eaten
1: all the recipes.
2: You have. Yeah. <laughs> how do they taste? I thought about they're it. Good. I did think they're, about
1: they're it. They're not, they're not salty enough for human taste for sure, but, um, they're good. The Turkey is my favorite one. Um,
2: that's funny. That's my dog's favorite one too. We did a taste it. test. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> oh yeah. The, tur- yeah, actually, I actually I saw your videos. Yeah. That, yeah
2: yep. The they like the Turkey for sure. Um, but it, g- with putting nutrition into, um, kind of these formulated diets and of course every dog is individual and has individual requirements. Tell me how you kind of, meet some of those nutritional needs on a mass level with each of these dogs. And I'm really curious to hear too, because I understand that you put a a nutrient mix or a nutrient pack into the food as well to make sure that they're getting everything that they need in their diet, not just the bare minimum, but the stuff that's actually really good for them on top of that.
1: Yeah. And so I kind of, um, we actually just are um, in the process of publishing a scientific review article about kind of dog nutrition and kind of specifically sort of phytonutrients. So like plant-based nutrients, because, I mean, I mentioned before, and I mean, I'm certainly not, and this is not my area of expertise, but I I, I read the review that our nutritionists wrote, um, there, you know, there's the AFCO minimum guidelines, but there's all these, like a guideline means that it will keep you alive, but it doesn't mean there aren't all sorts of other things that you can, that are beneficial and known to be beneficial. They're just not a legal requirement. And so, you know, Justin, um, Um Smallberg, who is our veterinary nutritionist, board-certified veterinary nutritionist, there are very few of them. It's a very kind of weird specialty. I
2: think there's like 86, Um, I want to say, right?
1: Yeah, there's there's there are fewer than 100 in the country, which is just crazy. I know it's some
2: small number. Yeah. What a a field.
1: It seems crazy to me, too, because it's such an important part. I mean, we have complete control over what we feed our pets. Yeah. And so it seemingly is a pretty important thing for <laughs> to understand, right? So, it, like, when, yeah, when I heard that, it was kind of crazy that it's such a rare thing. But um, yeah, so d- when you know, formulating these foods, you know, having this like very rare and extremely deep understanding of what's out there, like they're very specifically formulated to meet, you know, all, you know, of course, the the, the minimum guidelines, but also have all these additional benef- things that are known from the literature to be beneficial. I mean, everything across the company is like very science forward. I mean, everything we do is based on the current thinking in the literature, whether, you know, whether it's the diets or our probiotics or whatever, all of our products. I mean, that's what we're trying to do is help take the guesswork because there's, I mean, you know, you, we've all been in the pet store and look at what's there and like, how do you know what's legitimate and what's not, and what's a marketing claim and what's like, and especially once you get into supplements, where there's very little regulation, it's really hard to know what products are real. And that's kind of part of the genesis of the entire company. Is like, well, let's let's do this. There, like, there's science underneath all of this. Let's build something that's based on the science. And it's like part of what we're doing on the R and D team is, you know, testing our products and regularly and looking them and running studies on you know internally. We have a couple studies right now that we're finishing up about looking at. Um, changes when you change from a kibble to a fresh diet. We have a study that we're wrapping up about what happens to healthy dogs when they take our probiotic. So we kind of have this cycle where we can develop products and then we can test them and then we can improve upon them. Um, And we can also improve on them as, you know, as the literature moves forward, you know, like something new comes out like, oh, we didn't really understand this about nutrition. Now we do. Oh, great. Let's reformulate our products so that they now have kind of this most most up to the date um, you know, knowledge that's kind of baked into them.
2: Yeah, it that, that you hit the nail on the head. That that's the exact reason that I was so attracted to Nam Nam and what Nam was doing. I mean, you guys have an incredibly impressive team of, again, very well informed, intelligent people that have all put in efforts from their areas of expertise into this one big project for pet health and to to continuously evolve in your practice with providing what's best, especially through testing is really what's impressive. I mean, it's very difficult for the average pet owner to be able to weed through all of the, the marketing fluff that's out there. So choosing a diet in particular, whatever diet it may be that is science forward, I think is so incredibly important. It just hushes all of the marketing nonsense. I mean, you can still have good marketing. Don't get me wrong. I love non-noms marketing, but, um, <laughs> I like that it's science forward, right? It's, it's really focused on what's good for the dog. Um, so I, I do kind of want to, um, she I want to talk to you now too. Um, we're going to involve you. Well, I, I want to ask, um, about the, uh, poop sampling that you mentioned yeah. earlier on, because this is really intriguing. I know they're doing this in humans too, you know, taking different samples and looking at them. So I want to see what's going on in the dog world with that and what this information that you're gathering, how you're doing it and what this information is telling you specifically about the dietary needs of of the dogs that you guys are, are, um, feeding.
0: Yeah. So, um, When we talk about the dog microbiome, um, we are sort of in a very unfortunate um, uh, position uh, because um, human microbiome field sort of took off about 10, maybe about a decade ago. And, um, you know, people quickly realized the importance of the the microbiome and people started collecting microbiome from large group of people, from a diverse group of people. And today, we actually know a lot about how um, a microbiome develops in a baby, when it matures, um, its effect, um, like, you know, diet, geography, and other sort of environmental factors effect on the uh, the gut microbiome in humans. There are a lot of things that we still need to figure out, but, but, you know, it's pretty, um, there are several papers um, that have come out addressing these sorts of issues But when we look at the dog microbiome, it's very, very limited to laboratory dogs. And so people, and then the sample sizes are very, very small, small meaning a dozen dogs um, that were uh, raised in the lab uh, that were fed a very standard um, sort of diet. um, And um, until I would say early I don't know when our paper came out, Ryan, but um, I think it's about, you know, like about a year ago, it was um, the the data from a general dog population was very, very limited. So one of the first things that we did at NomNom was we um, started uh, looking at the microbiomes from our customers and we selected um, a subset of that data um, to look at how diverse is the gut microbiome in dogs. And what we found, was just like in humans, when you look at the, the, the microbiomes in dogs, we see, a very, um, uh, we see a lot of variation between dogs. In fact, if we were to use some sort of an agnostic um, computational approach to say, hey, if you take the dog microbiome, can you tell me how many different groups of dogs are there? So basically, in other words, based on the dog microbiome, can we divide the dogs into different groups? And we actually can. Uh, unfortunately, when we uh, collected these data, we did not um, have um, the, the survey data, which, which we have learned, and we have started collecting uh, metadata from, from our customers. So we, don't, we actually don't know uh, w- what is the biological basis behind these different clusters in dogs, but we definitely see there is tremendous variation. Interestingly, cats tend to have higher diversity so there are larger numbers of microbes within cats but we actually don't see that kind of diversity within cats meaning they have a lot of microbes but they are very similar to um to one another Um, but whereas if we look at the dogs um, some dogs have a lot of microbes some dogs have little some dogs have a particular type of bacteria others don't so it's interesting Um, uh, uh, observation, but we don't know the biological basis behind it. And that's something we are actively pursuing.
2: Would that have anything to do with, um, because now as the domesticated dogs digestive systems have evolved, you know, they're, they're dating dogs back to anywhere from like 35,000 years. Maybe they stemmed from a wolf ancestor. Maybe it was another, but I'm curious because now dogs are more, um, generalistic, um, omnivores rather, you know, they can extract nutrients from plant materials, whereas cats can't get some of their stuff. They, they, they are, you know, obligate carnivores. So they have to have, um, or to extract rather, and obviously you know more about this and can explain it better. They have to extract some of their nutrients from meat products in order to survive well and in a healthy way. So I'm really curious if, if, that difference has anything to do with the difference between being more omnivorous or more carnivorous, more um, meat and plant-based versus completely meat-based.
0: Yep. Maybe. So um, there is a strong chance that there is a little bit of a, uh, or there's a strong effect of diet um, in, in dog microbiome, um, gut microbiome, but it is also possible that the biology of dogs, right. And this is something that we um, started, um, uh, or we started to learn about after we saw this, um, this, uh, this this observation. So if you think about cats, they are more or less the same size, right? You know, um, but if you look at dogs, it can go from Chihuahua to Great Dane. Um, so unlike, the lab studies where people just take a standard set of dogs, maybe 12 beagles or labs or boxers or something like that. We actually, because we get samples directly from from our customers, we have a wide range of dog size. And we actually do see that there is some association between dogs' body size and the the gut microbiome. And there is a, a plausible reason to think that 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 um, that is actually a true association because if you think about the gastrointestinal volume, um, uh, right? So the dogs that are very large, they can actually house more uh, bacteria um, compared to dogs that are like you know five pounds, like a lot of the chihuahuas. They are very small, um, and um, so just like from surface volume, surface area um, perspective, um, they're. They, There is a huge difference, number one. Size
2: matters.
0: (laughs) Size matters, exactly. Uh, Number two, um, there is differences in uh, dogs' behavior, right? So some dogs may spend a lot of time outside, whereas other dogs don't, and that may be contributing. The reason why is the dogs that are spending a lot of time outside probably sniffing things, eating grass, you know, digging hole, um, and eating something from the ground, and it probably is exposed to a larger number of microbes compared to a dog that sort of stays inside for a long period of time. Um, so, th- so my point is there could be some dietary effect, um, but there could also be some environmental effect. Uh, and there could be some sort of like, a dogs, like biology, like, sh- um, body size, uh, and weight, um, th- those sorts of effects as well. Uh, but, your point of um, like dog and human evolution is actually really interesting because dogs, right? Like are pro- like you know, dogs and humans are probably so tightly connected with their diet, right? So when we started eating domesticated food, dogs also sort of began to eat domesticated food. So and we do see signatures of selection in dogs in their genomes that um, in response to eating this high starch. Of food that is prevalent in the domesticated societies so there's no reason for us to think that there is no adaptation in the gut microbiome uh, of the dogs in response to shared diet with humans. even that is not very well um, explored and and um, that is a a, a fantastic um, uh, subject um, and we're uh, we're very interested in that as well
1: It's interesting because there you know dog food as a separate food from human food is a very recent development, yeah. right? So through most of this 35,000 or however many years it is, for most of this co-evolution, they ate the exact same food as us. And diet is a huge driver of microbiome composition. And so it makes sense that some of these things have co-evolved. There's actually a study a couple of years ago showing that there is actually a high degree of similarity in some ways between humans and dog microbiomes, which are probably, you know, de- be shared environment and shared diet those are two big drivers of, of microbial composition i also want to comment on i think it's really interesting that you bring up genetics because it's something we're really interested in to see like are there gen, are their breed or even kind of broader sort of genetic genomic different drivers of microbial composition so you know, we know that there are some between size, but say between, you know, similar size, but genetically diverse populations of dogs, will there be kind of, you know, similarities between, or differences between their microbiomes? Like, we, we don't know that yet. We're actually setting up some um, some systems so that we can more carefully look at that. But I think that's super interesting because, the, you know, the more we understand them, the more you can start thinking about more customized approaches to, you know, to correcting or, you know, or preventing any sort of pathologies in more and more narrow kind of cohorts of, of, um, pets.
2: Yeah. Prevention is key. I'm completely fascinated by this topic as well, because, um, it's just, it's something that can only progress us further in our knowledge as far as, you know, what we should be doing, what we aren't doing, what's natural, what's not, as, you know, we continue to try to do what's best for our pets in general. And from a behavior perspective, we are always looking at the difference between genetics and environment and nature versus nurture kind of thing. So it's really cool to think that we're having some of this progress in the field of nutrition based on the same thing. How much of it is nature? How much of it is nurture? Is it the size of the dog? Is it the environment that the dog is in? Is it a combination of factors? Is there, you know, a breed class uh, or is it specific, breed to breed to breed based on how we've bred them in these different directions. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's completely fascinating that we're able to um, start looking into this again with science forward. I mean, that's the fun part of it is that you can use all of this information to hopefully deduce what, what is best because what it ultimately boils down to is people really care about their pets, their family members. You know, we're used to, we're getting more and more used to having them as part of our family. And so the more we know and the better that we can do for them, I think people feel really good about that you know in a sense that they're doing the best that they can and providing the best the best they can for their their pets so i'm super excited to see what comes out about that so we can pinpoint more of what is nature what is nurture you know genetics versus environment
1: yeah and i mean you know with behavior again it's something that we're definitely interested in looking at i mean in, in humans there's been all sorts of behavioral links to the microbiome and some of the biology is super weird and interesting and really cool um, but things like you know depression, anxiety, all these things that have that are exact, you know, problematic behaviors, you know, things that you deal with in your, in your training, I'm positive that there will also be analogs in dogs. There's only I think there's only in one study so far. It was a small study on boxers or something, and they showed you know like some problem. I think it was anxiety and aggression issues versus kind of a healthy baseline, and they saw some kind of interesting differences. So we're interested in looking at that as well because if we can figure out what some of these bugs are that are associated with, you know, behavior that are associated with behavior, then we can start thinking about, you know, some specific probiotics that are completely targeted at helping to mitigate, you know, anxiety issues, for example. So it's definitely something that we're, you know, it's, it's a very common complaint of dog, of, of, of you know, of, of pet parents, of dog parents. And it's something that I think we will certainly kind of play out in some way um, in the microbiome as well.
2: It'd be fun to figure out what exactly it is because we know that nutrition plays a role in behavior. One of the first things that I talk to clients about too is what kind of food is your dog getting? How frequently, what kind of protein is it? Um, And we go through all of those things. And if we need to make adjustments, we do, because oftentimes I feel like there are um, comorbidities to behavior problems. It's not just one thing. And nutrition is one of those things on that list that we tackle. So we don't exactly know the specifics and why we just know that if we do things a certain way it's beneficial and it helps so it'll be really cool to actually get those answers to why and how it's very specifically linked i think
1: yeah definitely we should um yeah we should have a chat about having you help us collect some some samples of some of some problematic animals because we you know we have this giant health assessment and it's self-reported from people who send their samples in but having you know someone like you know having some some pets that have some very distinct behavioral issues as kind of a comparison group to a lot of the rest of the dogs we have could really could could help us you know kind of pinpoint what some of these issues may be.
2: I would be happy to. And if you're in the greater Charlotte area and you're listening to this, I will collect poop, poop samples from your your fear aggressive and offensive aggressive dogs. No problem. I'd love to help out with that for sure. Um, one of the things I do want to talk about too, and we don't have to get super in depth, but one of the reasons that people consider at least trying different diets for their dogs is, is allergy related, you know, pinpointing different allergies in canines can be really complicated sometimes. And one of the first things that I see veterinarians at least lean towards is looking at diet trials. So, um, you know, what are we learning as far as what the microbiome has to tell us about allergies and how do, how can we use that information to formulate diets for dogs that have either food sensitivities or intolerances and, and, or straight up, um, allergies. And, and it'd probably be good to touch on what the difference is between those two. Things yeah, yeah. I was just well. going to say, I think
1: that's a good place to start is that because it's, it's, I mean, by, you know, kind of biologically, they're very different. I mean, I mean, a, a food allergy is immunologically based. And so in the way, the way to kind of think about it is maybe you're, the immune system of the dog is reacting to a component of the food in kind of a similar way that it reacts to an infection so it's an immune system kind of modulated in sensitivity which then has all of these downstream percussions because it kind of is treating this like it would an, an infection in a lot of ways food ins- insensitivities and intolerances there's you know there's a bunch of different causes and, sim- and it's difficult because sim- if you look at the symptoms they can be similar you know, whether it's, you know, like hot spots or diarrhea or some of these things, but the biology underpinning them is very different. Um, allergy is something that we're super interested in. We actually just recently finished enrolling a study um, of dogs with, um, with diagnosed food allergies because we want to compare those to dogs without allergies and start to look at what the differences are. So there's, there's certainly a microbiome component of this. Um, there is actually some decent literature about, you know, using specific probiotic strains to help ameliorate that because, you know, the, so much of your body's immune system is actually in the gut, which makes sense if you think about it, because we have this huge amount of bacteria that are living there harmoniously with our bodies. And so this crosstalk between our immune system and all of these bugs is very, very, uh, very evolved and balanced. And most of the time it works fine, right? Like we have all these bugs, we get along, we are mutually beneficial for each other. You know, things you start looking at autoimmune disease or allergy, that's when these, these kind of thresholds start to shift and problems can occur. But we know that, you know, with you know, fiber and probiotics, some of these things, they, they help generate, sort of the way to think about it is like, there's sort of immunological thresholds, right? And they're set at a particular place. And if you're healthy, you're not getting too much inflammation and you're not getting symptoms from inflammation. Um, and, you know, having a healthy microbiome keeps those thresholds where they should be. When you start to get dysbiosis and, you know, or allergy or these things, that the thresholds start to change. And then you start to get these inflammatory things, which can oftentimes be cyclical and sort of feedback on themselves. And the symptoms cause more symptoms to develop. Um, but it's, it's certainly something that, that there's a known role of the microbiome in, and it's, it's something that we're actively looking to, to help address. Um, there are also some, you know, at, there are nutritional interventions as well. We're actually working on on an allergy product right now, which will be a combination of, you know, some probiotic strains, some prebiotic strains, some nutritional additions to try and, um, to try and address this. Because it, it, is a, a, it is a very big problem for, for pet owners, I know.
2: So, how do you collect data on that as well so do pet owners when they're doing their initial consultation with nom nom about what type of food to be on or they're talking with someone do they disclose to you that the pet has allergies and that's kind of what they're doing and if so do you basically follow up with them kind of survey style to see if there's any effect or how do you collect the data to see what's really working
1: So yeah, there's, there's kind of a small set of questions that we ask um, when people are signing up for the food, um, because there are things, you know, we want to know, like, do you have problems with this? You have, you know, there's some specific indications like pancreatitis or things where, you know, our food, like our regular food can't, you know, shouldn't be used. Like, but those are very, very nice things. So we collect a little bit of data up front. You know, we have four different proteins, so you can do rotation because protein insensitivity seems to be. that's one of the things that drives allergies we also have pork which is a fairly novel protein which people use that have had um, previous problems um, to you know sensitivities to other more common things like chicken or beef Um, but then we also have a much you know and this is more sort of the r d level where we have this giant health assessment that we developed about 125 questions and it covers very like you know medical history food and sensitivity behavior covers kind of everything that we could possibly think about Because then that helps us get kind of a snapshot, we can look at things like we we actually published, or we we pre-published where it's under review for publication, a whole study based on just this epidemiological data that we collected. So just based on lots and lots of survey responses, we're able to figure out what some of the risk factors are for obesity, for example. Um, So just using this as a tool in and of itself has been really useful for us. You know, we actually have, we've done some work on allergies and we know some of the risk factors there. Like we're still kind of playing around with those data a little bit, but then that also helps us as we then gather. And uh, Ashish mentioned this earlier, you know, we call it the the metadata. So it's these, these health data, that then we link up with the microbiome data and we can start to say, all right, like these group of dogs we know have diagnosed food allergies, what sort of microbiome, biome do they have compared to similar dogs that don't have food allergies? And we can then start to really distinctly look at what these driving important, and this is you know what Ashish does, like these super complicated statistical methods and approaches because the data are really complicated and integrated, but start to then break down like, well what, you know, what's what looks good, what looks bad? Like are there pop and then, you know, the next step starts to become well, can we predict at risk populations? Like you look, you know, you may not have a food allergy right now, but you're microbiome looks a lot like other dogs that do have food allergy. So can we then intervene earlier? And like you mentioned prevention, I mean, prevention is so much better than treatment, right? So if we can start to then utilize this data as kind of, a, as you know, not really a formal diagnostic, but as like an indication of possible risk factors, like, okay, you need to you know, go on a recipe rotate a protein rotation and probably take some probiotics. And that should help to shift these populations to you know hopefully slow or remove the progression so that's you know that's these are the things we're thinking about we're not we're not quite there yet but we have some really kind of tantalizing and this is where the field is in general right in in human medicine as well as being able to look predictively at you know whether or not you respond to a dietary intervention or whether or not you respond to chemotherapy or whatever it is like using um kind of the snapshot of the microbiome. It's called a companion diagnostic, essentially. So you look at what is there and then you can predict what intervention will will work and be the most appropriate for that. So, you know, we're looking at that for, for allergy, for obesity, for behavior, for a bunch of different things, but that's kind of where we're, what kind of where we're driving towards.
2: That's incredibly helpful, I mean, you think about it, you really just kind of roll the dice and hope that your dog doesn't have any issues it'd be great to have well you know there they may be predispositioned to an allergy to this because because um, I know just from personal experience oftentimes if a dog is three four five six years old, and all of a sudden develops a food allergy the the owners are typically completely blown away by it like they don't understand everything's been fine up until now, you know especially if it's something that's later onset you know um, in regard to food allergy so to to be able to at least predict some of that would be incredibly helpful, I think, for owners in general. So- yeah, I
1: mean, all- allergies are, are, are really tricky. And even people we don't, have, you know, they they change over time, right? Because it's this immunologically based thing, your immune system is always kind of changing and evolving, because it's kind of designed to be surveilling the, its surroundings all the time. And so part of the way it does that is it just makes a bunch of these totally random different types of cells and just is kind of and are looking for things that that look for and that it can react to but it's it's changing right so it's always kind of moving and evolving over time and then you know there are things that you can do like your environment you know your diet your lifestyle actually like all these sort of things like where you live your age has a big impact all of these things kind of change and yeah i mean you can lose allergies and you can gain allergies over time so it's it's really it's a complicated it's, it's, it's super complicated. Right. And so anything we can shed, but food allergies are, are so terrible because I mean, you obviously can't stop eating. Like if you're alert, you know, there are things you can do to change your behavior or change, you know, change other things, but you have to obviously eat. And so food allergies become very, very hard. And then they can be hard to diagnose and hard to disentangle and it can be hard to treat as well.
2: Yes, like the, the, have you heard the term that the probably, but the, the genetic red queen, you heard of that term before we have to constantly shift because of the the you, everything seems like it's okay and you've adapted to one situation and all of a sudden you have to readapt because it's it, the the chessboard's always always shifting yeah always yeah,
1: always shifting so yeah but yeah, anything we can do to you know predict and also prevent you know moving into any sort of disease state that's that's so much better and that's you know those are the types of things that that we you know in pets and the, the field in general are are really looking at
2: And Ashish, you get to read all of this wonderful data that comes through and be the interpreter for it all, right? You put it into layman's terms for everybody else to understand what all this data means.
0: Well, I try to, yes.
1: (laughs) Being a bioinformaticist means you have to be one of the most patient people because you have to explain things, very complicated things to people like me who don't understand them very well. So.
2: Excellent. Well, um, this has been really, really informative. And I really appreciate appreciate you both taking your time uh, this evening to help spread some information about the importance behind nutrition, kind of what you guys are doing in the field to help pet owners feel really good about what they're putting in their in their uh, dog's bodies, you know, because ultimately, we control what goes in and out of the system. So we control the body. And so I think it's very helpful for people to hear this information for it not to be nearly as intimidating, of course, that it's, it's, you know, we leave the complex stuff to you guys, the experts, but we can break it down into a way that you can understand what you need to, to do what's best for your, your family member. Um, I'm definitely going to throw a bunch of resources in the description in the video below. If you guys want to contribute anything to that, that would be awesome. But there's some articles in particular that are on the Nomnom Nom site that you've shared with me that I think would be super helpful. They're very easy to read. And so for anybody's reading pleasure that wants to dive a little bit deeper into these topics. I'll put those in there. And then um, also if anybody has any questions in particular, please feel free to pop those in the comments below. Um, If you want to reach out to Nom Nom directly, you can. You can reach out to the research team. Um, Their email address for that is just research at nomnomnow.com. I will also put that in the link below. Please don't forget, if you like this video, let us all know. Uh, by hitting the like button, you can hit the subscribe and the bell notification to receive more content just like it. we are definitely going to be doing more based specifically on nutrition and with the nom nom team, because we love this science forward, um, approach to doing what's best for our dogs. So if I forgot anything, um, now's the time, anything you want to throw in to let everybody know about that we missed or that's important, uh, any fun projects, anything like that guys.
1: Hey, what are you, what are you most excited about right now? Sheesh. Besides all the Memorial Day sale stuff you just got,
0: yes, I am super excited about my 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 tent. Um, <clears throat> actually, I bought a dome because now we have a. So I have a humongous dog. Um, she's seventy pound Vizsla mix, and she is claustrophobic. So uh, you, if every time we try to put her in a car, she just creates a havoc. Uh, and putting her in a tent is is very challenging. So. We got bought like a dome so that she can be in there comfortably and not bark uh, (laughs) or jump in the middle of the night. Um, But but other than that, as far as science is concerned, right? So I I feel that we are sort of like a pioneer in the dog microbiome space because we are um, generating a lot of samples, a lot of data from real world dogs, which is very different from. Laboratory dogs because many times what happens when we look at the laboratory research uh, research done with laboratory animals Is that they are ve- they are sometimes hard to translate in the general population. So um, Whatever we're doing um, be- Because we're working with uh, with the general population. We have um, a different sets of challenges but if we can overcome those challenges and identify Um, uh, you know, connections between microbiome and specific aspects of dog health, we can then start to think about prevention as well as therapeutics. Um, And uh, we are somewhat, we have started um, towards that, and it's an incredible journey ahead of us and um, I'm super excited that we are starting to have enough samples now that we can tackle some of these issues right so we can tackle effect of diet we can tackle effect of age tackle some of the diseases so um, so so we're chipping it um, away so you know one thing at a time but um, but I, I'm very excited to to, to be able um, to be in the forefront um, in this field so people people who are listening (laughs)
1: yeah i mean it's a you know we've done we spent a lot of time um developing kind of a library of articles of things that we think are interesting and important but are kind of portrayed in a way which are you know hopefully you know fairly digestible to people so um you know and if people have other things that we haven't covered like we'd love to hear you know we we Wrote a bunch of stuff that we think is cool, but I'm sure that there are things we overlooked, and like we'd love to hear from people. If you want to get involved, I and mean, we have a we have an R and D blog on the site, um, we can put the address up. I don't know what it is off the top of my head, <laughs> where we you know summarize stuff that we're doing, analyses that we've it that we've run. We talk about studies that we're enrolling for. People are interested in in those. Um, we talk about other interesting things that are happening in kind of in the field in general. So. Um, yeah reach out get in touch you know see what we're up to and yeah we're you know doing our best to keep up and letting people know what we're doing and why we're doing it so that everybody can you know kind of um, stay educated about it
0: yeah and we can provide like Ryan's cell phone numbers (laughs) (laughs) 24-7 happy to talk about poop Um, (laughs) yeah but
2: there is a three-hour difference so let's be courteous of that if you're on the East Coast versus West Coast right so don't text him in the middle of the night on accident (laughs) Well, thank you so much, gentlemen. I really enjoyed this conversation and I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to what's coming next uh, over there at Nom Nom and especially as research develops and um, I'll definitely help with the poop sequencing. I'm all about sampling and uh, I'll put some information in there too. Uh, just like you said, Ryan, about how people can get involved with helping with the science of things. I think the more people we get involved and excited about this, the better. And the more informed they become at that point too, because they're along for the for the ride, right? So, but yeah, um, any questions? Feel free to pop them in the comment or reach out to Nom Nom directly. And uh, I'm very much looking forward to talking with you guys again soon. I appreciate it.
1: Great, thank you so much, Sarah. It was great. All right, bye bye. Bye.